this week. Oak Tree Walks After Roller Coaster Aegean Marine Dip Hearing. Catalina Marketing and Parker Drilling File for Bankruptcy. Marble Ridge and Neiman Spar Over Alleged My Teresa Transfer Scheme. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distress, debt, and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. This week, Sarah Gepter, Managing Editor for Reorg Americas, talks to a panel of experts to discuss the bankruptcy trade claims market. Stay tuned for her interview with Peter Lupoff, Cindy Chen Delano of White Box Advisors, and Elliot Gans of the Loan Syndications and Trading Association. It's Sunday, December 16th. In what can only be described as a roller coaster day for Aegean Marine, the bankrupt global fuel bunkering company on Thursday first announced an RSA with Oak Tree and Hartree Partners, in which Oak Tree parties would buy 100% of the reorganized company. That was followed by counsel for Mercuria announcing in court that it submitted a, quote, better bid. The day ended with Oak Tree and Hartree pulling out of their dip proposal and RSA. The Oak Tree, Hartree dip and related RSA were a sharp break from the debtor's previous proposal to obtain dip financing from and sell substantially all assets to Mercuria, the global commodity trading house. But when the debtors presented their request for a final dip order before Judge Michael Wiles at Thursday's hearing, Judge Wiles indicated that he was not prepared to approve certain aspects of the Oak Tree Hartree dip. In particular, he said that the proposed $19 million prepayment premium, due if the debtors proposed an alternative transaction to the one outlined in the RSA, was essentially a breakup fee. The Oak Tree Hartree dip milestones would also prematurely bind the debtors to the RSA, Judge Wiles said. Counsel to Mercuria, Alex Lees of Milbank Tweet asserted that his clients had made a better offer. At the conclusion of the hearing, counsel to Oak Tree Hartree, Tom Loria of White and Case, said that his clients were, quote, withdrawing from the contest. Check out Holding Corporation, aka Catalina Marketing, and several affiliates filed for Chapter 11 in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the District of Delaware on Wednesday. The debtors had an RSA in hand with approximately 93% of first lien lenders and approximately 75% of second lien lenders. Judge Kevin Gross granted the Catalina marketing debtors requested first day relief after an uncontested hearing in Delaware on Thursday afternoon. Under the plan, first lien lenders will receive 90% of reorganized equity and second lien lenders will receive 10%. The debtors reached an agreement for $275 million in debt financing backstopped by certain first lien lenders split between $125 million in new money and a $150 million roll-up of the pre-petition first lien debt. The dip is open to all first lien lenders on a pro-rata basis. Gary Holzer of Wild Gottschall Council to the debtors emphasized during the hearing that the dip financing is, quote, in essence, a bridge to the closing of the restructuring contemplated under the debtors' pre-packaged plan of reorganization. No objections were raised outside of concerns by the U.S. trustee that were resolved either before or during the hearing, but counsel for the ad hoc first lien lender group stated, and the court acknowledged, that, quote, some issues could arise at the final dip hearing related to certain provisions in the facility related to a marshalling waterfall provision, or other provisions included in the financing terms to, quote, entice lenders. 
A combined disclosure statement and plan confirmation hearing is scheduled for January 31st. The fight between Neiman and Marble Ridge made it to court this week. In a legal complaint filed against Neiman Marcus Group, Marble Ridge Capital asserted that the company's transfer of its valuable MyTerese assets to its parent out of the reach of debt holders was a, quote, integrated two-step scheme to again, quote, loot its subsidiary Neiman Marcus Group Limited, LLC. Marble Ridge estimated the MyTerese assets to be worth $1 billion and said in the complaint that MyTerese had been transferred for, quote, no consideration. Marble Ridge hopes in its suit to avoid the transfers to Neiman's parent as an intentional or constructive fraudulent transfer and also to recover such assets. Marble Ridge accused Neiman of, quote, machinations designed to line the pockets of Neiman's management, Ares, and the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board in a later statement. Neiman responded on Friday with counterclaims for defamation and business disparagement and sought dismissal of Marble Ridge's suit. Neiman's answer included a summary of the steps that the company took in distributing My Teresa to its parent, as well as the applicable provisions in the company's debt documents, which the company says permit the transfers. Reorg also learned that Wachtell Lipton, as counsel to an ad hoc group of Neiman Marcus's term loan lenders, has drafted a letter to Credit Suisse AG requesting the bank resign as term loan administrative agent. The request comes as lenders mobilize to litigate the transfer of My Teresa, sources to Reorg added. Parker Drilling, a Houston-based provider of drilling services and rental tools to the global E&P industry, filed for Chapter 11 protection in Houston on Wednesday. The debtors filed with an RSA supported by four funds, Brigade, Highbridge, Whitebox, and Varde. The funds in aggregate hold 77% of Parker's unsecured notes, as well as a significant amount of preferred stock and common. The debtors attribute the bankruptcy filing to the, quote, sustained downturn in commodity prices, which reduced demand for its services and crimped the prices it was able to charge. The first day declaration from CRO John Edward Menger also noted a declining cash position, a risk that availability under its ABL facility would be restricted, and that it would be left without financing options for its 2020 maturities. The cornerstone of the RSA is a $95 million rights offering that will be open to both equity holders and unsecured bondholders. $60 million of the rights will go to note holders and $35 million to equity. At the first day hearing, Judge Marvin Isger granted all requested relief, while counsel for, quote, largest stockholder, Saba Capital, said it does not support the RSA, but is willing to negotiate with the debtors and consenting stakeholders. On the island of Puerto Rico, Judge Judith Gail Dane entered an order Friday afternoon granting the UCC's motion authorizing discovery of the Title III debtors other than COFINA. Her order mandated document production to commence by December 21st. The motion had had the backing of the Oversight Board, so long as the Special Claims Committee formed by the Board was provided with, quote, all materials produced. The American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees submitted a notice voluntarily dismissing its adversary proceeding challenging furlough and pension-related provisions in a prior version of the fiscal plan and fiscal 2018 budget. In addition, actuarial consultant Aon Risk Solutions projected the, quote, end of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's employee pension system in just over five years. Quote, our initial analysis now shows that the pension fund will end in just over five years and devolve into a, quote, pay-as-you-go payment approach at approximately $250 million per year, Aon's letter said. Quote, 
We've also learned the pension plan assets held by ERS are substantially less than anticipated and are substantially invested in non-traditional assets. PREPA's certified fiscal plan had projected the depletion of the pension system assets by 2027. A federal grand jury returned a third superseding indictment that charged four individuals with the use of a firearm during and in relation to a drug trafficking crime resulting in the June 2011 murder of banker Maurice Bagnoletti, formerly with the Doral Financial Corporation. The bank closed in 2015 by the Puerto Rican Financial Institutions Commissioner. The indictments were announced by U.S. Attorney for the District of Puerto Rico, Rosa Emilia Rodriguez-Velez, on Wednesday. The defendants could face the death penalty for the alleged murder of the then 56-year-old banker, federal authorities said. In a telephone interview with Reorg on Wednesday, Rodriguez said the four arrested were members of a drug trafficking and money laundering gang, and that Spagnoletti was killed as a result of canceling a Doral contract with a maintenance company that was allegedly used by the gang to launder money and employ members. She said the contract cancellation, which occurred after an audit ordered by Spagnoletti, caused problems for gang members and, quote, essentially, they decided to do away with him. The investigation continues. Other top red stories of the week were Waypoint reaches definitive agreement for $650 million sale to Macquarie, receives $45 million dip from existing lenders. Omega Advisors seeks to invalidate sale of unlisted MTNs to Cyrus Capital, Sears re-lockup agreement, decries auction as, quote, unfair, opaque, and uncompetitive. Debold 2019 cost savings may not be enough to offset increased cash burn from ongoing business decline. And now here's Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead. Thanks, Karen. Greetings all, and welcome to the last week of activity before Christmas and New Year's. So it's a busy week, especially for you legal types, and dominated, interestingly enough, by a name once synonymous with Christmas. I'm referring, of course, to Sears. I'm old enough to remember the old wish book. I can still see the Pony Express rider whipping his steed up Bandera Pass with a big sack of them for all the kids in Kerrville. Anyways... Monday, December 17th, the final dip hearing for Aegean Marine, whose hearings have thus far served as a reminder that drama was created in Greece and really rarely improved on for the most part. Confirmation hearing in Mossy and Gasolfi, an evidentiary hearing in iHeart, and a bid deadline in Gastar. Monday is also the early tender deadline for Urban One. Also on Monday, 11 a.m. New York time, 10 a.m. Houston, it's Reorg's webinar on the Parker Drilling Chapter 11 filing, including myself, head of credit Mark Fisher, and legal analyst Alex Brosman. Everything you need to know about the debtors, their financials, and their filing. Tuesday, December 18th, a sales hearing for Sears Ship Business. That's the home improvement stuff, not nautical hardware. A dip amendment hearing in Nine West, a disclosure statement hearing for Westmoreland, and a Propco One disclosure statement hearing for toys. R Us. Wednesday, December 19th, an omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico, and the confirmation hearing for American Tire. Rite Aid, we have a third quarter earnings release and a conference call. Thursday, December 20th, the second day and bidding procedures hearing for Waypoint. Sears again with a final junior dip in MTN hearing and a planned disclosure statement hearing for Gasstar. And Friday, December 21st, Sears for the last time this week, a review decision by ISDA related to an external review regarding the SRAC auction. Please see our coverage for more details. And with that, back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. We'll be following all that and more in the coming week. 
This week, Sarah Gafter had a conversation with our panel of experts to discuss the evolving bankruptcy trade claims market. Hi, I'm Sarah Gefter, Managing Editor in Charge of Reorg Americas. We're very excited to have as our guests Peter Lupoff, Cindy Chen Delano, and Elliot Gans. Our guests are here for a conversation on the evolving topic of trading of bankruptcy claims, an area in which all of our guests have been active. Peter is a longtime distressed investor, founder of Tiburone Capital Management, and now manager of his own family office. Cindy is a senior legal analyst on the credit team at White Box Advisors with expertise in bankruptcy, distressed debt, special situations, and corporate reorganizations. Elliot is executive vice president, general counsel, and chief of staff at the Loan Syndications and Trading Association. Today, we'll give listeners an introduction to trade claims. We'll talk about the mechanics and some key issues in claims trading. And then we'll also try and put this in the context of the current credit cycle. Before we begin, though, I'll give a brief disclaimer. Peter recently wrote an article discussing oral commitments in claims trading, which will be available on LinkedIn and also on Reorg's media page. Peter has also served as an expert witness for White Box in a number of trade claims-related litigations. While Reorg covers certain cases in which White Box and or Peter may be involved, all views and opinions of our guests are their own. So with that, let's jump right in. I'll start with Peter. Peter, broadly speaking, what is a trade claim and how does the market for trading arise? Who are the buyers and who are the sellers? Hi. Well, uh, trade claims are claims for repayment that arise when a vendor, supplier, or service provider to a bankrupt company, the trade, perform but don't get repaid. Bankruptcy claims trading, then, is the buying and selling of these trade claims, claims for repayment against the company seeking protection or relief under the code. And a trade claim is a claim against the debtor by a vendor or service provider for unpaid amounts due them for goods and services. Typically, sellers are original vendors who go unpaid. And as the distressed markets evolved, especially since 1990 forward, in the traditional distressed investor wheelhouse is the whole capitalization of a company, including trade claims, which are pari passu or rated ratably with general unsecured typically. So they can be valued. Uh, Just as loans began to trade, trade claims began to trade, uh, particularly in a large way starting back in around 1990. So there's there's a lot of bankruptcy cases that that happen, um, but not all of them have bankruptcy claims, trade claims that trade in the bankruptcy. Can you talk a little bit about which cases have claims that are available to buy and and sell? Um, I'm not sure that it's easier to talk about that in the context of the industries where claims arise, but there can be surprising cases. Obvious ones would be retail, where there are myriad suppliers of product to uh, retailers that take in inventory and uh, typically, this, this is the time of year they will take an inventory, borrow as much money as they can under their borrowing facilities, and then file bankruptcy. But I've seen cases where uh, a bankrupt drug company or a research company has claims of companies like Merck or Pfizer. So in some instances, claims are enormous. They could be in the tens of millions of dollars, 50, 60, 70, 100 million dollar claims. Uh, and there can be few claimants, or there can be, for example, in a retail bankruptcy uh, like Sears or uh, Bonton, for example, there could be many small claimants, some as small as what they call the convenience class, under a thousand or two. 
So, Cindy, as someone on the buy side, can you talk about at what point in the bankruptcy these claims arise as an opportunity? Sure. I think um, when you think about opportunity sets, obviously the arc of it depends on the nature of the case. Um, But importantly, anytime anything files for bankruptcy on the petition date, we'll start looking at the dockets. Well, you know, I'll start combing through the first days. I'll start looking at, you know, some of the motions there. But importantly, the declaration, the first day declaration, looking at sort of where the case is going, what type of case it is, um, the industry sizing and who's involved. Um, So from that set, as you as you go through the volumes of information, you start gleaning sort of opportunity sets and start thinking directionally um, what could potentially be out there. Um, But I think, you know, even before case files, I know there are certain opportunities that we should, you know, that's, as I mentioned, the arc of a case. It, you know, before a case files, there should be um, instances where it's not the first time you're seeing distress. So I think with that, you know, Peter, who's had a lot of experience in looking at sort of the longer tail version of this um, can speak to that. Cindy Cindy makes a good point. So then I, I just to hit that home is that interestingly, I think that some people around this podcast and around this topic may think there's something adversarial in the relationship between a buyer of a claim and a seller of a claim. And that's not the case, really. Uh, more often than not, claims close. But to Cindy's point, early on in the case, um, vendors oftentimes reach out to participants in the market saying, hey, you know, I'm really worried about fill in the blank. You know, I think that XYZ, uh, my credit manager won't let me ship goods. I'd like to, is there something you can structure for me? And dating back to uh, 97, 98, when, when I know when I was with Marty Whitman, we wrote bankruptcy puts to the to suppliers of Kmart, allowing Kmart to avoid bankruptcy. I guess it, it didn't take, but it, you know, they, they lasted, what, another eight years before a filing. Uh, so um, uh, buy side firms like Cindy's and people in the marketplace are uh, good actors that are, are producing financings that allow suppliers also to ship with confidence that should there be a filing, they can put a claim at a fixed price and sometimes that does a trick to facilitate vendor shipments. Okay, so turning to Elliot. Elliot, can you tell us about the Loan Syndications and Trading Association and its mission, um, and then also how you look at trade claims? Sure. Um, the LCA is a trade association that represents the interests of the syndicated loan market mainly, uh, from middle market all the way to the broadly syndicated market, um, very much focused on the institutional market. Uh, both performing and distressed loans. Uh, we have 450 members, both buy side, uh, all, all the major sell side players, a lot of law firms and vendors. Um, and we try to uh, uh, facilitate an efficient and growing market um, in, in a fair way. Um, uh, the trade claims market is very much a nearby market. It's not something we uh, focus on a, a huge amount of our resources, but it's very, very similar. Um, what's interesting in, in this conversation that I've been hearing is there's this connotation that buyers of vendor claims, um, you know, the evil, you know, distressed buyers, and there's, there, there has been a similar sort of connotation to distressed loan buyers. Um, but in both cases, the distressed buyers play a really important role in the markets. Uh, In the loan market, the distressed buyers are liquidity 
for regular way investors in performing loans. The people who invest in performing loans are not really interested in and don't have the expertise, and their investors are not interested in following a bankruptcy. They really want to reallocate the capital, get, get back sort of their first loss, is it their best loss? Reallocate into new loans and move on. They don't want to follow the bankruptcy. That's not the expertise. It's not their mission, not their, their investment uh, goal. Similarly, in the, in, the, in the vendor world, in the claims world, the vendors, it's, it's an out for vendors who are you know, obviously in a different business. They have nothing to do with the financial markets. They've got a financial instrument that arose uh, out, of, out of their claim, but that's not what they do, and they don't really want to follow a bankruptcy. And the people like Cindy go in there and, and help them, in a sense, by providing liquidity for them. Yeah, interestingly, the uh, trade claims marketplace, there's this, mo there's this symbiosis that doesn't really exist in other markets. It does to a degree, but clearly you've got parties with different interests, as Elliot points out. A vendor is in the business of manufacturing a product. They're a service provider. The claim that arises was uh, unintended, but it's a claim nonetheless, ratable with other claims that trade regularly, so therefore easy to price. The symbiosis is that somebody like Cindy is in the business of valuing the future perceived recoveries associated with that present value to today. We'll pay a cash price for that. A vendor can use that cash to put back in their core business and needn't worry what the future perceived recoveries are, or for that matter, that they may not get cash two, three years out. They may get private equity. So. Um, Unusually, uh, of, of all the markets in the distressed marketplace, of all the products that can be traded, this one has sort of the greatest win-win prospect. It's not zero-sum gain that you've got a distressed investor on one side of the trade and one on the other making equal and opposite valuation bets. The, each party wins typically uh, because they have different interests that are being served. I think that's a great point, Peter. And when we look at it, it's that symbiotic nature of it. Um, when you think about the risk that's embedded in any bankruptcy trade claim, there are two functional risks here. It's the risk of the claim, whether the claim is allowed, disallowed, and whether um, the risk of recovery. And from our standpoint, we take the risk of recovery as a buyer of the claim from the seller. And for that reason, the risk of recovery, because of the complexities of a case and because it turns on a number of things happening in these bankruptcy cases, that's our expertise and that's where we come in and that's where we are able to price. And that's why the most critical function of any any trade is what is the price that we're willing to pay today to take the risk of recovery from the seller of the claim. Um, I can wait in to start on that one. So um, if what we're saying is, is the first thesis is that claims should trade like all other obligations do with commitments uh, being actionable, whether they're oral or initial, however you define that. Um, equities trade that way. Uh, bonds trade that way. Bank debt trades that way. Trade claims arise from filing, and trade claims are typically ratable with bonds. So theoretically, if they arise in the same part of a company's cap structure, theoretically, claims trade claims can yield a recovery that's substantially similar or maybe even identical to a bond. 
one of the things you would do as a buyer of trade claims is you you would price the trade claim based on that reference bond in this instance of the erratable, but um, uh, scale that price back for liquidity and supply and demand dynamics. Um, just as an aside on oral commitments, if in fact it's not an orderly market and oral commitments were inactionable, you would pull that bid back significantly because then what you're doing is giving a, a buyer basically a free option. But in short, if assuming that unsecureds as a class are ratable, trade claims would trade like bonds and you would uh, price claims if they are in fact ratable just at a discount for liquidity and for the ministerial due diligence on amount. So that's a good segue. Can we talk about the actual mechanics of buying a trade claim from finding finding that it may exist in the first day papers or other court filings? What's the next step? Sure. So they come to us in a variety of forms, as I mentioned, sometimes, and it's all relationship based. They'll come from a broker. It'll come from you know a lawyer that's looking to buy or sell. We get our teams involved um, in the due diligence of it. And going off of what Peter was just saying, you know, unlike bonds, I think trade claims require a little heightened, actually not a little, but way uh, very heightened uh, due diligence because you have to figure out whether which debtor it's at, um, who are who its obligors are, because um, that information is uh, specific and bespoke to that particular claim, and it's not as um, readily available. And so you do have to go through the volumes of information. Once you are comfortable with the the nature of the claim, such that you can then figure out the pricing on account of the recovery or what you think the recovery should be, um, then you are able to buy and sell. And from the sources that I mentioned, the, the brokers, the relationships, and you give them a price and they say, I buy, I sell a certain price, and then you are done with it. And that usually comes in the form of, can come in the form of oral, email, um, it could be, you know, a more formal trade confirmation, and then you then move on to a, you know, the assignment agreement, and then followed once everything's completed in terms of the assignment um, itself, i.e., the settlement. Then you go and you file your evidence of transfer on on the bankruptcy docket under Rule three thousand and one, which is ministerial to show that there's been a change of ownership and to let the world know that the ownership has occurred. Hey, Cindy, we the LCA put out a, a confirm. Uh, standard confirm in 2013. Is, do you use that? You know, it's uh, we use ver varieties of it. Um, it depends on where the source is of the claim. And for that reason, you know, it's not standardized uh, across the board in terms of how how brokers and how other lawyers and sources come to us. And so that's why the key thing thematically across the board is that the oral confirm or the handshake on the price is critical. And that's what really is the uh, most material term in any settlement and any uh, agreement on a claim. So unlike bonds or loans or, or equities, there's no, there's no quoted price for a trade claim. So does the, does the does the buying start to begin when a plan gets filed or before that? Do you have to know what the trade might get in the bankruptcy in order to be interested in buying a claim? No, you buy it at all stages. And for that reason, the price is a function of uncertainty. Because at earlier on, I think because there's greater uncertainty, you will be able to buy at you know, more discounted prices. But then, of course, you take, when you think about the risk of recovery, you're taking greater risks on recovery, which is why when you think about 
you know, what it is that you need in order to be able to fully analyze the risk of recovery. You need people that have expertise in understanding how a bankruptcy process works, understanding what the sort of pathways, the potential decision trees that can happen along the way, and understanding those types of players um, that are in a bankruptcy is critical to help inform um, a decision on what your price will be for the risk of recovery. I'd just like to add one point to that. So when in the article I wrote, I talk about a little bit in a behavioral sense, the difference between uh, financial institutions like Cindy's as buyers and traditional trade creditors. And, and I use the words of behavioral speak uh, calibration. And so when people like Cindy are in the markets every single day, pricing risk, pricing whole cap structures, uh, where there are a variety of alternatives that you could invest in, trade claims being just one of them, um, you're comfortable with price volatility. You're in the business of pricing risk and price volatility. It's what you do. And so some of the conflicts that can arise are because you have on one side highly calibrated people that are comfortable with that, uh, and those with human bias and perhaps moral casualness on the other side, that if it goes against them, uh, they do what they can to find the ruse to get out of trades. The point I really want to make about this is that if Cindy is in a market early buying, it isn't just that as more information occurs, the price goes up. Um, we've all been involved in situations where you buy things and the more information you have, you realize there's significant delay or assets are not worth what you first contemplated and prices go down over time. And, and that's uh, the risk that a calibrated player a market's participant takes, and that's to the advantage of the sellers. So given where we are, ahead of a credit cycle. Um, Elliot, can you talk to us about sort of how how robust the market is today for trade claims and where we may need to go um, to get more liquidity and more efficiency in that market? So let's start. There, there, there have been a, a few decisions recently that are very concerning, particularly going into a cycle. Um, this market really depends on the buyers knowing that when they do an oral trade, it sticks, and that there is, in fact, a trade. The similar things happen in the early stages of the loan market, uh, where early on people were more inclined to walk away from a trade if the price moved away. But it's even more difficult here, because in, even back in that inefficient market, the parties were more sophisticated. They were banks, mainly, um, who had a culture of sticking to a trade. Here you have a vendor world that's not really in the financial sphere um, on one side and financial players on the other. Um, but if they don't stick to the trade because the price moves away, you're going to have a really big problem. And particularly as the cycle gets bigger and there's more distressed, uh, you, you have a market that, that people can't count on. Uh, so what can you do about it? So that, that's an interesting question. There are certain things the market can do. Um, I would recommend, as we did in the loan market, you know, starting 30 years ago, to develop more standard documentation. Um, our confirm is used, but it's not used across the board, as Cindy mentioned. Um, so things like that could help. But frankly, because of the difference in the players, I think a lot of it falls to the courts. Um, 
I think the courts have failed to understand what exactly is going on. And fundamentally, when the trade is done, it's done on the basis of the price. There's not much more, and, and you know, you, you identify the asset clearly, and the price, and that's those are the terms. There's really not much beyond that. And courts have been reading into these contracts more than there really is, and they're giving credence to things that aren't really there. Every single uh, trade dispute that I've ever seen in the loan market, in the trade market, for 32 years has been one party welching on the trade because the price moved between the time of the trade and before a settlement. Why am I glad Elliot said that and not me? <laughs> I can that. Um, in the loan market, but it's, but it's, more, it's more challenging in the trade market in, in the claims market for the following reason. Most players in the loan market are financial players. They are not gonna welch on a trade because they have reputation risk. They are repeat players. Most of these people come back and back and back. If someone gets a reputation for welching on a trade, people are not gonna wanna deal with them. In the, in the vendor market, that, uh, that doesn't necessarily apply. So, and, and, and there may not be that culture of sticking to a trade, and that makes it more difficult. And that's why, again, I get back to the pressure that the courts get this right. There was a case that the LSTA was involved in uh, a couple of years ago called Stonehill versus Bank of the West, where it, it was pretty outrageous. The, there, there was an auction, Stonehill won the bid, uh, the documentation was, was agreed ahead of time. Uh, the price, the, the, the uh, the loan was then going to, they, it, it became clear that the loan was going to be repaid at a much higher price, um, and the seller just welched, basically. The lower court in New York got it exactly right, to their credit. <clears throat> the appellate division completely misunderstood what was going on, and then the Court of Appeals took on the case and in a 7 nothing decision made it very, very clear the things that we're talking about. The material terms are, you know, the price and the asset, and all the documentation, there's really not a lot to negotiate. You're done, you have a contract. Um, and that was a great result. If you don't get similar results in the, in the claims space, it's really not gonna be a good thing, because ultimately it's exactly the same thing. The problem you kind of run into is you have a vendor, the sympathetic vendor against the evil hedge fund, and courts really do take that into account. And they, they think that the vendor doesn't know what it's doing and it's getting played by the, the hedge fund. And, and, and they, they, they kind of want to get to that result and it makes for really bad law. I think to that point, it's critical again to reemphasize, you know, at the end of the day, while we and on the buyer side are experts in terms of what we think the potential recovery can be and we can price the volatility of a case, we don't know the claims the way a vendor does. And the vendors, you know, to, to Ed, Elliot's point, are experts in, their, in the quality of their claim in terms of their relationship with the debtors. And they themselves, you know, for that very reason, always uh, keep that risk. And so, you know, it's, it's really a symbiotic relationship. There, there's a morality issue here, too, which I, I, I put in my article the question for people that read it about a third of the way through the first page that as an ex-hedge fund manager, do you not smirk a little bit when you hear me say or see me write about morality? 
But I mean, we're uh, we're in a business of understanding the import of our words. When when we say to each other, "I buy, I sell," we know what that means. And frankly, if we were taught well at home, we all know from our parents, you know, what words mean. If you're in the business, whatever business you're in, in commercial activity, when you say to a, a client uh, that um, y your words have import and they are reliant on them. So I think on the other side of a trade where you have a financial buyer and you have a, a, a first time seller even, that's a trade creditor selling the claim, I think they understand what it means when the financial buyer says, I buy. And I think they understand that they've elicited a reaction. And so the words either have the meaning that they have or they're a ruse that it, that's meant to deceive. So, so let me tell us a, a, a quick story that happened to me 20 something years ago. I was at ING. Um, we, we were in an auction for a distressed loan. And the analyst was a young Dutch guy who did, did his math and made a mistake. And we bid based on his mistake. And we were way over the, the, the cover bid. Um, we had bid way too much, and it was very clear because the cover bid was so far from, from our. They hit the bid, um, then we realized our mistake, and I called up their counsel, their in-house counsel, and explained that it was a mistake and that you probably knew it was a mistake based on the cover. And they were not willing to walk away, and they were not willing to undo the, tr the trade. So we were faced with exactly the kind of situation that, that, that Peter is talking about. There, the price didn't move. It was really, it was even worse. We made a mistake. But we, we, our word was our bond. We said, you're done. And when you're done, we close the trade. And um, that's just, that's what moral actors do. And it's really, really important to an efficient market. By the way, we made money anyway. But not, just not as much. So Elliot, I wanna challenge and dig into something you said a little bit. Can you talk about um, why it is that you think that the courts are failing here? I think generally speaking, we think of bankruptcy courts in particular as pretty savvy and judicious players. Sure, and I don't disagree with that sentiment. Um, I think in this space, the documentation is really not the issue. Uh, often the vendor will try to make it the issue. In the Stonehill case that I referred to earlier, that was exactly the issue. They said, we hadn't negotiated the document and therefore there was no trade. Where you were talking about a standard document that never gets negotiated. And the, the Court of Appeals really just didn't buy that, that, uh, that, that argument. In, in, in the claims uh, area as well, it's never about the documentation. The, the only question is, what is the price, how much, and what's the asset? Um, as I said before, in every single case, what gives rise to the case is that between the time of the oral trade and closing, the price has moved dramatically. And the vendor made, a, you know, turns out in retrospect made a bad deal. Um, and the and and the, the courts to some extent are falling for the argument that there's more to negotiate than just the price and the amount. And in this case, it's not true. This is very different from where the courts do very well, 
typically in the bankruptcy, where there's a credit agreement that's 200 pages and have, has covenants and, and all kinds of other things and talks about collateral and, and you know, what if, you know, which affiliates can, you know, can buy it and, and, and where you can move it. All those issues, the credit agreements are there there is something to discuss that's not never the case in these cases it's really simple we don't even get to a document before there's a conflict here so what the bankruptcy courts that are i agree they're sophisticated and capable at doing what they typically do when they're asked to judge the morality of a decision to walk away from a deal and look at a fact pattern it it, it it's asking it's a, it may be asking them to apply a set to a set of circumstances they just don't typically see. And so I think, to Ellie's point, I'll use the word again, they may just be prone to fall for the perception that there's unequal knowledge and sophistication. And that would mean that in transactions where people say, I buy and sell, transactions that people in all walks of life make all the time, including the vendors, that in this one instance, a court will say, "Ah, you know, somehow we will we will um, accept a lower standard for you, the vendor, than for the the hedge fund or the financial buyer." I, I do. Sorry, I, I do think that were there more standard documentation in this market, it would be much harder for vendors to make those arguments because as in the Stonehill case, it would bring it much closer to that. And again, the bankruptcy courts, this is you know usually New York law, the bankruptcy courts would have to rely on that case. And if there were standard documentation out there, then there's, there's really nothing to argue about because you can't even, you can't even make that argument because you are agreeing to something that's not negotiated. So as, as we sit here today, basically, for example, Cindy, you might find a vendor who has a claim that you're interested in buying. You find out who they are, what their phone number is, presumably, you give them a call, you talk about the claim, you agree to a price over the phone, and then what? Well, based on that, you know, in our in our view, then that you have a deal and you now have to close on that deal because the price is the function of what it is, the risk of recovery that we're taking. And they again keep the risk of the claim. And so what we do then is we you know, we take it forward to an assignment, um, and that assignment agreement, while has not yet reached the standard um, of the LSTA for loan documentation, is pretty much the same throughout. Which is, you're buying a claim. Um, you're going to take you, the buyer here, takes the risk that in the bankruptcy case, this claim, when it's allowed, may get you know, more or less based on your expectations. But the seller of the claim has to vouch and has to keep, um, you know, the, the ongoing representation that that is a good claim, that it's done nothing to impair the claim. And to the extent that it is not an allowed claim, um, that they are, you know, that they are then obligated to buy it back from you. Hey, Cindy, can I just introduce, how quickly, before the assignment agreement, and you, you do the oral trade, I'm done, mm -hmm. do you go into a confirm or a writing of any sort? You sometimes it happens in the form, and again, it depends on you know where we're getting the source from. Sometimes it's done in an email. Sometimes it's done through trading through an IB. Sometimes it's done on the phone with our traders. And so for that reason, you know, price is exactly what matters, and you know, it, it moves very quickly as you mentioned. And for that reason, it's um, you know, we move to settlement. It could be a week later from the settlement, but the deal is done. My question is very specific. 
do you always do a, a, like an immediate writing? You do not always do an immediate writing. And for that reason, it's not customary to do that because that handshake or the oral confirmation should be sufficient. Just like a, a bond trade can be done on the wire. That's right. Right. Um, I, I actually have a, a, a question, I think, that puts this into context about what we think as traditional buy side about the gravity of commitment is when you cross over a month end and you haven't closed on your trade claim yet, but you've made your all commitments, they're on your books and records for mark to market purposes, aren't they? So that's, uh, it, that's exactly right. I mean, it's in our view, if you think about sort of our books and records as reflective of what we think has happened, once there is a an email, oral confirm, you know, you agreed on the price, you put it on your books for that very purpose that Peter just outlined. Absolutely. And, that, and, and, and that's, you know, of course, how it works in the loan market, you, you know, before settlement, the risk trades the, the second you say you're done. And, um, and, and, if, and if there's a credit event, the buyer owns it, even if the trade uh, didn't settle. So that's the way it is. Settlement is viewed as administrative. And this is something that I think for folks that are not necessary necessarily market participants in the space that they really understand that settlement is a ministerial ministerial aspect whereas the actual agreement on price is really the core um transaction yeah you buy equities uh you do a trade today uh three days from now money transfers you trade a loan plus or minus 10 days from the day that risk transfers Similarly, with a trade claim, when you say I buy, uh, the risk transfers on that initial commitment, however it's oral or written, and, and money transfers upon the execution of that document, which too can be plus or minus 10 days. So I just want to finally go through some key risks and opportunities that our listeners should be looking out for ahead of the next cycle as it relates to trade claims. Um, I think maybe we'll start with Elliot and Cindy and Peter. Sure. So going, if we're going into a cycle and, and the volume of claims trading is going to go up, it's really, important, really, really important to get it right. In the loan market, back in the day, in the, 80, in the mid-80s, there was this goofy term called a trade is a trade. And that really underlied the idea that when you say you're done, you're done, and the risk moves. It was on that goofy statement that the, the loan market grew from this tiny kind of backwater to where it is today, which is a trillion dollar market with about $700 billion of trading a year because people could rely on the idea that when you do a trade, you can move forward and you don't have to worry about someone walking away. If that doesn't happen in the trade claims market, it's, it's not going to be uh, the kind of efficient market that you need to the extent the the, uh, the uh, volume of, of bankruptcies goes up. Yeah, and, and to touch on what Ellie just said, I absolutely agree with his sentiment that a trade is a trade is critical for not only and not only the development uh, development of a market, but also as a market participant, um, it gives us certainty that when we think about risk, that we are taking on the risk of recovery and not the risk of claim um, at a very early stage. And you know, for that reason, um, it would 
absolutely help in terms of the upcoming credit cycle in terms of the number of opportunities because what we should be looking at are ways to look at the inefficiencies of the actual cases and not not be bogged down by the inefficiencies of settlement or or the trading of an asset class. I think if we don't get this right in front of uh, the coming cycle, there's a coming cycle. There's more money to invest in distress than there's ever been before. And that inures to the benefit of suppliers that will look for liquidity as they have done in every cycle. Without getting this sort of sorted out properly, they'll put a chill on markets and there'll be new conventions because buyers will think that their bids even if they're accepted, are really options. And options cost money. So that will find its way into price. Be better to get this right. Okay, I wanna say thank you very much to Elliot, Cindy, and Peter for speaking with us today. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page. If you're not a subscriber, you can find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg.